the theme of James chapter 4, the letter of James, uh, the theme of James chapter 4 kind of spills over from the end of chapter 3 that we talked about last week. And I want you to remember something. Now, now I want you to be reminded that chapters and verses in, in our Bibles didn't exist right, when it was, was written. We uh, later, scholars over the centuries, put in the chapters and the verses. They decided when the chapter would end and when a new one would begin and the verses and, and so forth. So sometimes I read my Bible and I wonder, I question, like, why did you decide to end the chapter here and not here? Now, I, I say that I wonder and I question, but actually, I don't, I don't really because I don't know the original languages very well, if very, very, very little. Uh, so I don't even have a, a, a voice in the matter to begin to say what makes the most sense. Plus, it becomes even more complicated than that because in the ancient scrolls of the Bible, they didn't even have punctuation. So the original, the Bible was written in three languages. It was either Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. Now the Hebrew and the Aramaic languages, they were written without punctuation, without vowels. But good news about those two languages, that those two languages did include spaces between the words. Now, the letters and the writings in Greek were written all in uppercase letters, uh, some but inconsistent punctuation, and without spaces between the words. So all of this has been studied and analyzed, so and added uh, all of the chapters and verses that, that we we know, which is why I can't really question how they did it because it would be super hard. So at the end of chapter three, what we, we talked about last week, we found these words, we heard these words about, about wisdom from above. Now, end of chapter three said, said that wisdom from above was pure and peaceful and gentle and obedient, filled with mercy and good actions, fair and genuine, sowing seeds of justice by peace, peaceful actions. And then it said that earthly wisdom is jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Now, as we read chapter four, I want you to keep in mind these two things. And chapter four starts right with like the heart of conflict. Like where does conflict come from? And you'll see how it ties into chapter three. But first, just for fun. Okay, here is the first verse of James chapter four, uh, all in uppercase with no spaces, just for fun, right? This is English, right? And we could kind of decipher what it says, but it would take a little, a little work. Chapter four, verse one. What is the source of conflict among you? What is the source of your disputes? Don't they come from your cravings that are at war in your own lives? You long for something you don't have, so you commit murder. You are jealous for something you can't get, so you struggle and fight. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't have because you ask with evil intentions to waste it on your own 
cravings. Now, is anyone here ready to admit that you yourself are to blame for all or maybe even just part of the conflict that happens in your life? If you are, then you're probably a better person than I am. But the scripture says that very thing, that conflict starts within. It starts with us. Now, I wasn't always one to to admit when I was wrong. I would often be quick to blame growing up uh, others. I would blame others for things that were my fault. And, and, you know, I'm still growing in that as an adult. But imagine, imagine you go to your best friend or your spouse or your boss, and maybe you have had a disagreement. Maybe there's a little dispute between you, and you go to that person to, to resolve the conflict. And they say to you, you know, it sounds like you have some conflict in your life. The Bible says that you are the problem. And then they just walk away, right? I mean, you know, of course it may very well be true that you are the problem, uh, but that's probably not a great way to resolve conflict. So when doing premarital counseling sessions, Uh, couples getting married, I always ask them to a question. And I ask them to discuss how their parents or their household resolved conflict. Like, what was it like growing up in your home when, when somebody was angry with somebody else? And it's relevant to their marriage because many times, oftentimes, we copy and paste our conflict style from one of our parents. But we can't blame our parents because as adults, we can learn and grow new and we can uh, learn new ways to resolve conflict. And James is certainly not uh, uh, blaming our parents. James says that it comes from within. It's from the jealousy and desires. It's for, it's, it comes from longing for things that we don't have. He says it's the war in our own lives that brings us down. Now, the Bible talks about jealousy 40-some times. It uses the word envy like 50-some times. So this is, like, uh, this is a theme throughout Scripture. And jealousy and envy have two different definitions in our English language, but they're generally in the Bible kind of used interchangeably. And we, in our English language, we often use them interchangeably as well, but they kind of go hand in hand. So envy, the definition of envy is, is really wanting what someone else has. And jealousy is more about holding on to something we already have. It's that feeling we get uh, when, when the thing that we are holding on to is being threatened of being taken away. So when someone is feeling jealous, maybe they want to hold on to their power or their status or their money, for example, they often feel envious as well. They long to have uh, the, the power or status or money of someone else. So we've copied and pasted how our parents dealt with conflict. Uh, sometimes just subconsciously we've done that. But sometimes we purposely want to copy and paste 
other things that people have. The thing about jealousy when we are being envious is that we want to copy and see and copy and paste the things that we can see. But we don't always see the price that someone must pay for that fancy car or that house or a pair of shoes or perfect relationship. We don't always see uh, the stress of a high pressure job being uh, that person being taken away from their family so that they can have a fa- that fancy house. We don't always see the abuse of alcohol or prescription drugs that keep someone looking like they have it all together. According to the National Center for Drug Abuse Statistics, 60 million or 21% of people 12 and over have used illegal drugs or misused prescription drugs within the last year in the United States. And that statistic does not include the abuse of alcohol. So sometimes we don't see the amount of debt that someone might have because they've purchased a car or a house or something that they can't really afford. According to the Lending Club survey, around 64% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. That's just one, they miss one paycheck for some reason and that could start this spiral for them down. But we don't always see that. What we see is what we want to copy and paste, but we don't always see what's going on behind the scenes. But James is not just talking about wanting someone else's things. He's saying that this can lead to something much worse. Now, envy is one of the seven deadly sins. And you can't flip through your Bible and find the passage or verse number saying the seven deadly sins are sloth, greed, gluttony, anger, lust, envy, and pride. So where do these seven deadly sins come from? Now, Gregory the Great, he was a pope around 590 AD, and he was kind of the first to list the seven deadly sins. And he said that they are considered deadly because at first glance, they don't seem deadly. I mean, think about it. There are more serious things that we can consider. I mean, uh, sloth and gluttony. I did those things yesterday, (laughs) right? I mean, uh, eating too much chips and salsa and laying around a little bit too much yesterday. Surely there are more serious things that we could list than those. But Pope Gregory the Great believed that these sins were deadly because they were able to generate even more serious sins. Envy leading to hatred, hatred leading to anger, anger leading to murder. And that's the point that James is making. If you think about the story in the Old Testament of Cain and Abel, these two brothers, they both brought offerings to God and, and, and Cain ended up getting angry. He was jealous of his brother and he ended up murdering his brother. And jealousy is not just bad when it ends in murder because we're not off the hook if we have enough control uh, not to end our conflict in murder. 
Jealousy causes conflicts with others, and that conflict does not help us to be present for the kingdom of heaven that's here on earth. And when we think about it, so then what does this mean for our relationship with God? Well, James continues on, and James says, you unfaithful people. Now, I'm going to pause here, right here, uh, before going on any further. If you've been following along, reading through James, think about how many times James has said, my brothers and sisters. So many times we have read that over the last few weeks. But here he's saying, you unfaithful people. In other translations, they use, you adulterous people. And there's this theme throughout the book of James that we've been seeing. It's, it's either you're devoted to God or you're not. You can't do both. You can't be like, well, I'm just, a, I'm just a little bit of an adulteress, right? You're either an adulteress or you're not. You're either devoted to God or you're not. There's no in-between. So James continues, you unfaithful people, Don't you know that friendship with the world means hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you suppose that scripture is meaningless? Doesn't God long for our faithfulness in the life he has given to us? But he gives us more grace. This is why it says God stands against the proud but favors the humble. Now, that last part comes from from Proverbs, the Old Testament. And James reminds us that God has given us this life, a life that is made to be in worship with God, a life that is made to be uh, one with God and one with others. And so if there's conflict in our life, then there's probably conflict in our relationships, If we're jealous of things in this world, our relationships with others suffer, our relationship with God suffers. So what's the solution? James says this, therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will run away from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cut out in sorrow, cry, cry out in sorrow, mourn and weep. Let your laughter become mourning and your joy become sadness. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So James is saying, okay, first what we do is we turn from sin. We, we run from sin, he's saying, And secondly, what we do is we spend time with God. We do that through prayer or worship or service or building relationships in community. But then the third thing that James is telling us to do, this is the real answer and this is the hardest thing to do, is that we are supposed to repent. I want you to think about Jesus's uh, disciples, two of them. I want you to think about Simon Peter and Judas. Now, they both let down God. They let their own selfish desires rule their actions. They let evil win in their lives. Now, Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus for some coins. He went to the Jewish authorities and led them to Jesus. 
Now, do you think that Jesus would have forgiven Judas? I think so. I believe so. But Judas, Judas realized what he did was wrong. He experienced sorrow and remorse, but then he ended up ending his own life. So in, in the life that he was given on earth, he did not experience forgiveness. Now, Peter, on the other hand, he's the one who said he would stand by, by Jesus no matter what, but he didn't. And when the pressure was on, he was more worried about himself and he denied Jesus three times. And how did Peter respond? And Matthew 26, 27 says, he wept bitterly. So he experienced sorrow as well and remorse as well, just like Judas. But Peter came back to Jesus. Peter allowed his sin to drive him closer to Jesus through, through godly sorrow and repentance. So James says that we should let our laughter and joy become sadness and mourning. God doesn't want us to be sad. But in order for us to live a life that has this lasting hope that comes from God, it, when we sin, it needs to affect us on a deep level. It has to get into our hearts. It's not just a thought of, oh, I've done something wrong. I should not have done that. But rather, it's a response that turns sin into transformation. So what if, what if the source of all of our disagreements and conflicts and disputes is because we are seeking validation or recognition or affection or power or control? What if we are the problem? Well, See, God's grace is available. It says this in the scripture, uh, not only in this part that we read, but in other, in other spots in scripture, it says that God's grace increases as our sin increases. God's grace is available for us. There's nothing that we can do where God will say, I'm, I'm done with you. He will always draw near to us when we draw near to him. The thing is, is this time of sorrow and repentance, it's probably not going to happen in this time of worship. I mean, I believe that the Holy Spirit is present when we are gathered here in this space and any time that we are gathered. I, I believe that. Sometimes we don't always recognize it. Sometimes we don't always call upon the Spirit, but I believe that the Spirit is, is here but it's not like a, a magic place where, okay, I went to church today, check, you know, now I'm, I'm good and I'm right with God. Because this kind of godly sorrow and repentance actually takes work for us. And we need to work however we can to, to get that. We journal, we seek out counseling, we, uh, we come after worship maybe and, and we start, uh, we, we pray with those up here. We recognize the, the hardness in our hearts that comes from our own selfish desires. A desire to want something that we don't have. Uh, maybe it's a desire that we simply want to be right. 
But remember, remember Simon Peter. Simon Peter wept bitterly. He experienced sorrow and remorse, but then he re- returned to Jesus. And we have that same opportunity to grow closer to God in this lifetime. It's not about what happens, uh, just about what happens when we die. It's about living in relationship with God here. Let's not lose that opportunity. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we choose you today and not this world. You have something so much greater for us than anything we can find by seeking our own desires. So help us to to open our eyes and recognize the ways that you are already working in this world and let us be a part of it. When we see others showing compassion or offering forgiveness or giving grace to someone who may not deserve it, those things come from you. And we have the ability to draw near to you and you come near to us. And soon the the desires of this world, they'll, they'll slowly start fading away and you will increase in our life. We'll find that joy, that hope, that peace that lasts forever and ever, that eternal hope that that only you can give us. God, you know our faults and you know our failures. You know that we mess up. You know that we turn away. But yet you still just offer us this grace and more grace and more grace, even when we don't deserve it. So thank you, God, for giving us a a chance and opportunity. And if we need to do work, if our hearts are hard, God, I, I would pray that you would show us what we need to work on this week. Allow us to feel sorrow for the things that we've done, and then allow us to feel the joy that can fill our hearts because we love Jesus. God, we say all of this in your son's name. Amen.